Hello, and welcome to the Lakeshore Records podcast, On Cue With. I'm your host, Alon Levitin, and for today's episode, I had the enormous pleasure of speaking with composer and resident board member for the Alliance for Women Film Composers, Stephanie Ikonobu, about her Grammy-nominated, pulse-pounding primal score to Assassin's Creed Valhalla, Dawn of Ragnarok. Stephanie recently made history becoming the first woman ever nominated in the first ever Grammy video game category, best score soundtrack for video games and other interactive media. In our wide-ranging conversation, we discussed Pink Floyd, Mendelssohn, comic books and geek culture, the chief importance of immediacy and instincts, collaborating with Ubisoft to sculpt the game's hard-hitting, raw, emotional sound palette, how to constantly challenge listener expectations, the cross-section between death metal, black metal, neo-folk, and mythology, how not to score a boss fight, Stephanie's main takeaways from the great Harry Gregson Williams, how to tackle writer's block, performative versus practical initiatives to promote women film composers, how slowing down a track can create killer intensity and chaos, and so much more. Stephanie's epic score for Assassin's Creed Valhalla, Dawn of Ragnarok, is out now, worldwide, via Lakeshore Records. I hope you enjoy our conversation as much as I did. I had the pleasure of hearing some of your music pretty early on before it was on screen. And I had to full transparency, I was not aware of you. And I- I'm still not aware of me, so. (laughs) It's a very existential thing to be. (laughs) And I was like, who is this badass? What is your background? How'd you get into music? How'd music get into you? So I started off as a youngin um, playing piano and violin, and I grew up playing in orchestras and loved orchestral music, loved string music. But I mostly grew up listening to classic rock because um, that's kind of what my parents listened to. So like Fleetwood Mac and Led Zeppelin and Pink Floyd, um, you know, Crosby, Stills and Nash, all these amazing bands, um, which is stuff I still listen to today. And I do think that just the combination of those two things made me fall in love with music. I fell in love with making music with people and um, just learning about music. So I decided to go to New England Conservatory uh, to study specifically composition, not not like film scoring or anything. And it was there that I started writing music for like some friends' short films. I really loved the collaborative process. I've always loved film and I just, I loved exploring what music could do when put up to the screen. I started working with Harry Gregson Williams and I was with him for six years, you know, running the gamut of all sorts of things that Harry Gregson Williams gets up to. And that's kind of how I, I got my feet wet in the industry. Six years. It's, it's a little bit of a mean question, which there will be many of. I look forward to it. Uh, to ask you to distill that down, but in six years, what are maybe one or two of the most salient things that you take away from working with Harry? There's, as you said, there are so many, but I think I think one of the things that I love most about Harry is his sense of immediacy. The thing that I love is that he never sits on an idea. Like if he's working on a cue or he's writing something, he and he thinks, 
wow, maybe this, this could really use a guitarist just to like come in and like improvise some stuff on top of it or add some layers. He'll be on the phone 30 seconds later, like setting up a session with George Deering in two hours or something. Just get it done. If you have an idea, just do it. Don't like prevaricate, just, just, just execute. Something is always a catalyst for something else. And I think that sparks a lot of great creativity. I've been lucky enough to conduct some of his scores on um, whenever we have scoring sessions, he would always throw me up on the podium for like some cues to conduct. You just have to be prepared at all times. It doesn't really matter, but also it kind of takes the nerves out of it in a sense. It's like, it could happen any, any moment. It's not worth being nervous for. You just go up there and do what you know how to do. Thinking about my first experience conducting an orchestra was, um, it was at Abbey road and we were doing Disney nature's monkey kingdom and he just came in the booth and I was in, I was um, his booth reader for so many years, um, listening and over the talk back, you know, telling him what we need to adjust and change. And then he would come in the booth and be like, all right, you go up and conduct the next one. Like, okay. And I remember being so terrified. Who the hell is this chick? Like what's going on? They were so nice to me, but I remember being so concerned about conducting every little thing. He would tell me it's not so important to like worry about your conducting patterns all the time. Like, you know, you don't have to be a glorified metronome. It's about coaxing performances out of them. It's about being gestural and like, and, and expressive and like making eye contact. That was one of the best lessons that I learned. And the more that I watched him conduct as well, that kind of like, it's not so much about making sure all your patterns and subdivisions are right all the time. Like they know what's up. They're professionals. Like it's not about that. It's about you knowing the music and being able to show like physical expression of that music with them to create something. It's about making a connection. I have always appreciated like those opportunities that he's given me to be in front of an orchestra because that stuff is so hard to practice. You just have to do it. And he's always known that. Sounds like there's an underlying theme in, of confidence. Just, just be confident in- totally in your craft. It's a big, huge part of it. You've kind of come onto the scene with these big projects that, and there's, there's a, there's a cross section of gaming, comic books, superheroes, geek culture. Is that something that you grew up with or were a part of? Have you been immersed into a new sort of sphere? I grew up playing some video games, not a ton of them. Like I grew up playing Halo and Max Payne and like some other stuff, but I had, that has since worn off. I haven't played games in a long time. And I was never a big comic book person either. Um, so being involved in these narratives is really fun for me because it's quite new and figuring out what I can do creatively um, without having that. I don't know, maybe I just, I'm approaching it from a very outside perspective, which is probably a good thing and a bad thing. It is interesting being roped into this stuff that has like this built-in following. For Assassin's Creed, I mean, that was a daunting undertaking just because, you know, obviously it's such a loved franchise and the music associated with Assassin's Creed, I absolutely love. I think Sarah Shackner and Jesper Kidd and Einar Selvig are just absolutely brilliant. And I respect their work so much. So stepping into that or under the umbrella of Valhalla, I was like, Ooh, this is really exciting stuff. This is the kind of music I, I like have always wanted the opportunity to write, but was also on the flip side. Like it was just, there was so much self-doubt. It was just like the spiraling <laughs> cycle of just like self-hatred, like, Oh, what am I doing? Can I do this? Um, but having those people those incredible composers being those pillars for me where I could always go back and listen to the Valhalla soundtrack and just be transported and immersed in that. Um, and, you know, I'd go on YouTube and like read the comments and I was like, wow, everybody is like, 
these people who play this game really love this music and they respect it. It's because they're spending hours and hours involved in it. You know, it's not like a film where it's, you know, a couple hours and you're done. And there are some people that like to listen to the soundtracks, but in games, people really listen and it's a big part of their gaming experience. So it's been, it's been a real joy just to have a tiny little piece of that pie for sure. Yeah, I had the pleasure of speaking with Jesper and Enar, um, and you know a lot of what we talked about. I feel kind of fell into the zone of ethnomusicology. And that's the thing about Assassin's Creed: it's that it's filled with these ancient instruments with these raw, primitive sounds, but the production is hyper, hyper modern. So it's like you have this sense of um, the old world, the past, the ancient nature of it but it feels a little bit sacrilegious in a way because we're like processing it through a modern lens, but that's where the fun. And I think that's where the uniqueness of the sound of Assassin's Creed comes from. I love, personally, I love it because I feel as, as you perfectly articulated bridging modernity with these ancient instruments. It's almost like it gives me the main vein. Yeah, totally. It just, it's like so primal. Yeah. And, and I just want to get up and like get crazy. <laughs> exactly. I personally feel like, from what I've heard of your work, this is my favorite album from you. Thank um, you. It's just so rich. The textures, the orchestrations, the riffs, the energy. I just am really just a fan of yours, generally speaking, but this is, I think, your best work, in my opinion. Thank you. I, I think it is too, actually. So thank you. It's nice to hear that from somebody else. <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to know what differentiates this from the previous ACV that you worked on, both in terms of, let's say, methodology and approach, but also in like maybe what you've learned, anything you'd like to discuss on that? Yeah, so uh, the previous DLC, The Siege of Paris, was just a very different sound world that I adopted for that. You know, I we talked about how I kind of leaned into the historical sort of musical narrative of Paris at that time during that historical event. And I kind of took the instrumentation of that time and sort of made it modern and kind of made it my own. This current expansion, Dawn of Ragnarok, is just a very different story. So Assassin's Creed is really branching out um, with what their you know games are about. And while Siege of Paris was about an historical time period, Dawn of Ragnarok lives in the mythology. When I had my first conversation with the creative team, with the developers, they had this idea that they wanted some sort of musical influence of the metal genre, death metal, black metal. They thought it was going to fit, like they were sort of listening to some stuff like that as they were kind of creating um, the concept art. And they were like, There's so there might be something here. Do you want to like try leaning into that? And I was like, fuck yeah. I mean, I was really excited by that. Black metal is a subgenre of metal music that I wasn't super familiar with. I love System of a Down. I think Toxicity is my favorite album, but they're not they're not black metal. So I at the start, I was like kind of terrified because I was like, I want to be able to do this genre justice um, because there's a lot of diehard black metal fans and people who play Assassin's Creed might also there might be like an overlap there. I at the very beginning was seeking out musicians who were really fluent in that genre. My husband went to college with um, this guy named Wayne Ingram, who is part of a band called Wilderun. And they're like a, amazing black metal, like cinematic folk band. 
And they just like live in that material and they do like Viking music. It was just the perfect fit to just start to have a collaboration with someone. Wayne was a big part of making this whole idea kind of come to life. So, you know, we sat down and we had lots of recording sessions. He played guitar and a bunch of other instruments on the score. And he got everyone else from Wilderun to do sampling sessions with me. So um, John Tichy, the drummer, got him to do stuff, got lots of like vocal growls and screams and like all sorts of really uh, raw, awesome stuff so that I had those kinds of timbres and and tools to play with as I started writing. That is very interesting. So you started out with a sound bank, more or less. Yeah, so I started out with it. The drums were really, really crucial for that stuff because if I wanted to start out a boss fight, I like made a list basically for John of what to like different tempi, different meters, switching up the um, like the emphasis of the beats in certain areas, just metric shifts and stuff. I sent that to him and he just recorded basically a whole kind of um, like a bunch of performances at those various tempi and stuff. So I could, you know, when I'm starting a sequence, I could kind of start to layer that in and arrange some of the drum stuff to give it that black metal energy that I was looking for and then would build the cue around that. So I've always said tempos. Apparently I'm wrong. I didn't know that tempi is a word. It's um, yeah, it, it's, it's all it's all the same. I'm gonna say it for the second time in my life. It's gonna feel weird, but I'm gonna say it. How did you know what tempi you wanted? You know, tempi um <laughs> is super important in any media music, but I feel particularly in video game music sure. because you're dealing with most of the time you're dealing with writing multi-layered pieces of music where you know you might need a bass layer and then you need layers of intensity or aggression on top of that so picking the tempo before you start a sequence is really crucial because sometimes you want to pick a tempo that allows you to do like a halftime feel for a bass layer and then a double time feel to make it feel more energetic for like an additional layer on top of that. So if you're picking a tempo that kind of lives in the middle where if you want to do double time, it's just going to be way too fast and frantic, then it kind of all starts to unravel. So I knew that I wanted, basically I knew that I wanted to have some sort of rhythmic variation in a lot of these pieces. Like I'm not the kind of composer that likes to write at the same tempo, like in the same meters, a lot of the time, I always want to be able to write pieces where I'm switching it up. So I would be like, can you do one, you know, that's in nine, eight at this tempo and switching the emphasis of the beats, you know, for a certain chunk of it. Um, like, can you do seven, eight? Can you do five, four? Can you do, I did one thing in 11, eight, which I'm sure they loved me for that. Um, but then I have the flexibility to sort of like cut and make the arrangement my own. Um, but being able to sort of cover a whole span of different meters and tempi was really really useful because I, I i had the whole score to write i was i was literally going to ask you about that i i yeah. knew i i've noticed in listening to your music that you have you do have this gift it seems for keeping a ferocious pace but changing up the meter and also adding space there are atmospheric breaks in, yeah that you add and I was going to ask you, what is the sort of rhyme behind that? Because you're not scoring a picture, right? It depends on the sequence, but for the most part, no. It's kind of just, um, unless it's a cutscene or a cinematic, then I'm, I'm obviously scoring to that. But otherwise, I'm sort of looking at gameplay capture to get the feel of something, like to get the pace of the space that you're in, that that piece of music is going to exist in. Um, but there's nothing to hit in particular. Um, it's just they give you a limitation for how long that cue should be. So 
is it just intuitive? I mean, when you're cutting and pasting different time signatures, is it just, it feels or it wants to have a pause in uh, percussive energy here? Or what is, what is the guidelines? How are you coming up with this? These very interesting sort of, for me as a listener, they're almost like very welcome Mr. X. I'm expecting mm. it to continue and to crescendo in energy and maybe literally volume. And then there's a, there's yeah. a, you know, the percussion will drop out. And mm -hmm. I personally find that to be very satisfying because it allows cool. more space and it allows me to sort of feel almost more immersed. And then you get the drive, the pulse kicks back in. Yeah. That's thank you for bringing that up because I, I feel like I, it is mostly intuitive when I do that stuff, but I always want to play with the listener's expectation of what the music is going to do or the shape it's going to take. Um, so for me as a composer, I always want to be creating that kind of intrigue in my music um, because it, I feel like it immerses the audience more. I, I think if you have like the same level of fullness um, for too long, you lose something. So you want to be able to bring the ear to different places. I've always been like a big breakdown composer. Like I like building things and then bringing it down to something minimal and then building again, or just, just to create, just, just to challenge those expectations of what we have. Um, and I think there are some composers who are really excellent at doing that, which I, I really, I've always admired. Um, but especially in video game music, I think it's great to be able to do that when you have loop-based music. You want to be able to have that variation so that it doesn't feel like it's just looping and looping and looping and it doesn't have any sort of shape to it. Um, so yeah, when I decide to sort of like switch up meters or do this and that, sometimes it happens very organically. Like I just write, I write a theme or I write a riff and that's what it is. Mm -hmm. um, that happened in like one of the 11.8 um, exploration cues that I wrote. I just like picked up a guitar and that's what it was but you know other times i sort of listen to it and then i'm like okay i want to break down here and then i want to build back to this point um so sometimes it's very conscious and sometimes it just happens without me even realizing it in this installment dawn of ragnarok now there's magic and and you know as you said mythology and gods and you're actually interacting with them actively how does that translate to or does it translate to your approach to the music, does the concept of magic bring with it different anything, instrumentation, or how do you approach it? I would say ordinarily in a film or TV show, it might, but with Assassin's Creed, I feel like most of that music is so rule-breaking to begin with that like we could have put black metal in Siege of Paris and it might've been really cool, but that just wasn't the image for it, right? Um, and then, but maybe, on a subconscious level, the game developers were like, yeah, this is this is mythology. So let's push it musically. Let's do something that you wouldn't necessarily expect from something like this. And what it did was it gave it this like incredible power, but it was still very grounded. So it wasn't like mystical atmospheric stuff. It was still like very grounded music. It was hard hitting. It was raw. It was emotional. Um, and I, I, I think that maybe maybe somewhere along the line like for me I did let myself go in those directions that I wouldn't have go a little bit more experimental because of the mythology behind it I don't know um but you know I think I think with this, any Assassin's Creed property they could just decide to do something really crazy up to any story and it'll work really really well <laughs> so it's hard to say but for me starting out I just knew I wanted to explore that black metal neo-folk thing and it ended up working out and just 
fitting like a puzzle piece with the mythological elements. Very interesting. You're not like, oh, now I'm going to pull out these magic plugins. These reverbs give you dream shine and whatever. I mean, there was one cinematic that they even told me that's that's something that I have had to pay close attention to because I find that I tend to just hide things in reverb and just like drown them in like very, very, very wet spaces. And Assassin's Creed is not that. Assassin's Creed is like close and raw and just like crispy. So I've had to back off on that so much. And that's like kind of my instinct, which is not great. But they were basically like, yeah, these spaces, the reverbs you're using are too dreamy. And even though it's mythology, we don't want that. But there was one cue where they were like, you can go, you can push into the reverb <laughs> on this one. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> That's right. Because it was a dream sequence and they wanted it to feel a little bit, they, they wanted it to sonically feel very different from what the rest of it was doing. So, Why is In Memory of a Very Fine Smithy so good? You know it was so good. Like, I... I don't know. Why is it? I don't know. I'll be totally honest with you. I just hearing the looking at the title of the song, I did not expect it. I thought it might be something different than what it was. And oh, what were you expecting? I mean, like very fine smithy. Sure. It just sounds, I didn't really pay attention to the in memory of, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it was just sounded like cutesy, you know, but it's like so deep and emotive. Mm-hmm. Did you? I just think it's just so good. Why is it so good? What? Did Thank you. you. <laughs> <laughs> no, I I think everything I do is shit. But um, I that one in particular, yeah, that piece was written for a cinematic in the game um, where a very important character passes, and it's at their funeral. Um, so it was it was um, important to like pay homage and have that respect with it, but it was also highly emotional for everyone that was there, and there was very little dialogue in the scene too. Um, so I used the theme used in that is the theme that I wrote for Spartaltime, um, which is the land of the dwarves. And uh, they're all craftsmen and they have a, they're a big part of the Ragnarok story. Um, so their theme is used and heard on various instruments, particularly the ram's horn, which is, is featured is like one of the featured solo instruments in that in that track. Um, so yeah, I hoped that I was able to convey kind of the, the deep emotional and spiritual element that the scene had because it was a really powerful cinematic scene in the game. It's one of those tearjerker tracks. Do you have an emotion when you've create you are creating or you have created something like that or is it more just cerebral? It it's strange because I feel like as composers we always have to write scenes like that. You know, we have to we have to be able to to do that and to find that well of emotion um, and express it through music. And sometimes the more you do it, the less you get attached to what you're writing. But like at some point along the way, you have to realize, no, this is special. Like they all have their own special thing and you need to bring something unique to that, the way of telling that emotional narrative. So when I sat down to write that, I actually rewrote that that scene a couple times. Um, and the reason being, it, it, it wasn't, it was like the pace and the way it unfolded wasn't right. So what I ended up with there, I'm actually quite happy with how it all sort of came together. I can't even remember what I did for the first couple of times. It was just either moving too quickly or too informative. That's the thing about very deep emotional pieces of music is that you don't want to have to tell the audience, this is emotional. You want it to just gradually, you want to feel something. And sometimes when you, you're a composer and you sit down to write stuff like that, it you, you, lose, you can lose sight of 
what people are going to feel from it because you're writing it. Um, so that one, it's just always good to have, for scenes like that, it's good to have some sort of outside perspective of someone being like, yeah, this just feels right. Because it could just be a matter of tweaking very simple things about it and then it could land. Uh, so it's tricky. So I'm glad that when you listen to it, you feel that. <laughs> yeah, no, it reminds me of Dylan says something about how music is supposed to just stop time. Like that's it. That's the only sign of good music. And I totally feel like that's one of those pieces that you start listening to it and you're suddenly whatever feels you have, whether subconscious or conscious, you're like, oh no, why are they coming? They're coming. <laughs> I kind of like it. Good. I'm glad. Do you experience, let's say, writer's block? Yeah, a lot, like quite quite a bit. Um, so it doesn't even matter how focused I am sometimes it's just like not there, you know, it's just not, it's not happening. And when that stuff happens to me, I tend to just leave. I I've done this for long enough where I know that if I continue to beat my head against something and it's just not coming, it's not worth sticking around. Like I'll start again the next day. If I have the flexibility to do that, I will. I don't get writer's block really when I'm up against a really tight deadline sure. uh, because you just don't have a choice. You just do it. And I often find that my best work comes from that stuff because I'm not struggling with my own thoughts. I'm going with my instincts. And oftentimes that tends to be the best. It, it all comes in these kinds of little bursts. I'm not to, not that you can really quantify it, but I'm just curious, is there a percentage? Is it like 90% of the time your instinct is the right way to go more or less? It It's taken me a, a while to even realize I can trust my instincts. Yeah. Um, you know, I think a very that's, good point. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think I've had to prove that to myself for years and years and time and again, and the moments where that has happened were the moments where I was put into a corner and I had so much to do and so much important music to write, like for big, you know, the pinnacle of a story or something, something really, really big that just needed to be right. And it needed to be perfect. And I had no time to do it. And I had a lot of, you know, had to like get performers and all of these things, just like sort of the perfect storm of, of creativity issues. Then I would, it would come out and I would have the soundtrack and I would listen back to it. And I would realize in the time where it was the most difficult for me to produce something great, I, I feel like I did it. And what that showed me is that I could rely on my instincts because in those tight moments, you don't have time to second guess yourself. So what came out was what I knew how to do and knew how to express. And it was even experimental for me. Like it was not something I had written before, but obviously I could lean back on my experience and all of the other work that I've written up until that point. So that was those those times, and that has only happened over the past year and a half or two years that I've I've made those discoveries about myself. And I think it, it does take a while to be able to realize you can count on yourself to create the level of product that you want in in times of of dire distress and things like sure, that. Sure. Sure. Yeah, no, with all with high pressure comes added confidence, right? Cuz yeah, you just have it, to you have you have to deliver. Yeah, for sure. Total sense. That makes total sense. One of the many things that I love about this soundtrack, the riffs, they're just gifts that keep on giving. <laughs> How do you know when a track is done? When I'm listening to Dawn of Ragnarok, there's so much going on. So when yeah. did she know when to stop? How did she find that magic blend? 
I mean, I just did what was asked of me <laughs> for the most part, you know, um, there was just a certain, like as lovely as it is to have an album that I feel like is a good listening experience on its own, apart from the so. game. It all came from just the very traditional sense of like, here, here's what we need for the game. Can you write this amount of music? I, I think there was quite a bit for several months on this of writing stuff and then throwing it out and rewriting it until we found the sweet spot of what was really, really working in the game because they're developing the game as I'm writing. So it's kind of coming into its own as I'm writing music. And sometimes the game sort of shifts in tone and then I have to kind of accommodate to that as well. So on this one, you know, I just knew I was done when I finished the main theme suite, which is the first track on the album. Mm -hmm. um, and they were like, yeah, this is enough music. But putting the soundtrack together is another experience from just writing the score because we talked about the multi-layered aspect of some of these cues, I always, I want to take it upon myself for the album to create that really rewarding listening experience, you know, for the audience as we talked about. So I'll be arranging some of those fight layers on top of the exploration cues and like making it just its own piece of music because it doesn't necessarily appear in the game that way, but I do want it to live on its own um, on the album. When you say uh, there's a tonal shift in where you started and let's say what didn't make it uh, to, the, to the final product, what is the, how would you characterize that tonal shift? I think the game, once I started to see more game captures, I realized the pace of it was very different. I knew the scope of the game was going to be quite big, but I didn't really understand it until I saw it. And the pace was like quite slow in some, not not slow in a bad way, but it was just vast. It was mm. like a vastness to it and there was a massiveness to it. And the big nemesis in the game, Sutter, is just this huge fire giant dude. He's really terrifying. When I started writing music for him and like the big boss fights with him towards the end of the game, I made some crucial missteps, uh, which ended up leading to me re rewriting a lot of stuff. You know, you have you have multiple boss fights with the nemesis and it's different phases. And so for every phase, you want it to get more intense and more just, just bigger and crazier. And so for me, I was thinking of Tempe again. And I was like, okay, well, I'm starting at this tempo. I'm increasing to here. And I'm also doing a different, you know, this, this one's in 6-4, for example, the middle one. And then when I got to the last one, I was like, well, that should be the fastest one. And that was not right. It just wasn't right. I feel like you kind of know it, but until you do it, you don't you don't realize there are ways of creating intensity and chaos without just making it fast. Mm -hmm. And for Sutter, the nemesis, he's so big and he's he's not like a quick guy. Like he doesn't move really fast. He's just he has mass and making music around him that was like fast and ticky and kind of just frenetic didn't work. It just didn't give the scope that it needed. So what I ended up having to rewrite for that piece was making it instead of maybe like 140 BPM, I made it 90 BPM and I made it feel like there was space, even though it's massive action music. And that was a really, really important lesson for me to learn is that you can create that intensity and make it epic and, and terrifying and exciting without it being just like fast and, and, you know, crazy and making the player feel anxious this made it more impactful. That makes total sense. That makes total yeah. sense. It sounds like you're capturing more of the essence of the primary, one of the primary characters. Exactly, yeah.
I believe you are a resident board member for the Alliance for Women Film Composers. I am indeed. Can you tell me, you know, this is a conversation that I believe can be challenging to have because it can sometimes get in the way of the amazing work of women. And also you, we can have these conversations, but sometimes it, for me at least, can feel a little bit vague, like there should be more <laughs> women composers. Great, sure. <laughs> right? Yes. Like agreed, stamped, right? Yep. So are there specific initiatives that you would like to see adopted or guidance or how, how do you approach this conversation? Great, yes, and thank you for saying all of those things. Um, I, you know, there have been excellent, excellent initiatives and movement within production companies happening over the past few years that have shown growth and a desire to include younger talent, fresh talent, or not even fresh, but like women who have been pounding the pavement for so many years, like actually giving them a seat at the table and giving them the opportunities they so deserve. Um, I do know that a lot of them also feel a little bit performative, like you said, like, let's do this diversity thing. And then, um, we've done it and that's what we need to do. Uh, and it doesn't really work that way. I think there are, there are some people who have given job opportunities to women, like some studios who have done that very successfully over the past few years. And I think that's a pattern that's continuing. Marvel is definitely one of those. I personally feel that a lot of the work that needs to be done is for younger generations and i'm talking like people in grade school um because i think visibility is always the biggest issue i think like when i was a kid i didn't see a lot of women conducting orchestras i didn't see a lot of women who were composers um and that's also the other issue with composing is that it's very much behind the scenes so it's not as like visual physical visual thing um but like all we know about are like the old white dudes who wrote like lots of symphonies and i think that's that's one of the problems is that like young girls don't see people who look like them doing this. So they don't even register it as an option. It's this, you know, kind of bias that is, is ingrained in us that we don't even realize it because we're not aware. So for me, I think it's about connecting younger people with, you know, just creating transparency for women who can show younger kids. This is something that you can do. Watch me do it. I think it's very simple. Um, and then putting focus on, uh, you know, young professionals or people in, like young women in college who were making music. Um, the Alliance with the Alliance, I founded this mentorship program along with a, a few other composers, Renee Kirchman and Nami Melumad, that connects one-on-one -on -one, uh, young women who are composers with like A-list composers um, for like a six-month mentorship, essentially, because we saw that there was this lack of lack of accessibility for young women to these incredibly decorated experienced people who could offer them guidance um and advice and you know uh critiques on their work and it just it felt like all of the dudes were kind of getting that and you know whether or not that, why that happens it's there's a lot of reasons but um i think i think offering the accessibility is really important and i think creating visibility for younger generations of of girls is incredibly crucial so it's like you know there's good work being done from the studios to give more opportunities for working composers but i think like i feel that by the time they get to like college age or like young 20s it's almost like too late the opportunities are still so hard to find so it's about really reshaping 
reshaping this whole narrative for the younger generations so that they don't have to face the same kind of, you know, issues that all women in this industry have had for so long. Did you have people in front of you that you saw? Did you see women in the industry growing up that you were aware of or composers or was there any, how did you, I don't know, transcend this? Yeah, it's an interesting thing because I, I, maybe I was just so, I lacked the awareness, but you know, when I was in college doing concert music, I didn't really even know it was an issue. And I guess props to my conservatory for having um, so many female composers. It felt like it was 50-50 male and female composers there. Um, until I came out to LA, I didn't really realize like, wow, I'm the only woman in this room. That's, that's it, you know? And I didn't, I, I guess I didn't understand how, you know, striking of a percentage it was that like women were working in this industry versus the men. So I didn't even, I didn't, I had like a female, um, composition professor when I was studying and I was like, she was brilliant. She was so, she was such a huge part of, um, rounding out my education and, and helping me figure out what kind of composer I was. And yeah, I didn't honestly, like I came out here and I didn't see too many women doing it. There were, there were, um, just not on a level of having the visibility they deserved. And that's why I think that's the biggest issue. So no, I didn't like model my career after anyone in, in particular, but working for Harry, he was fully aware of the issues, you know? Um, and I think that's part of the reason why he wanted to hire a female assistant. And he gave me all of that visibility. He gave me the visibility and the transparency with, um, you know, studio executives and producers and directors. He never hid me like behind a curtain. He was always like, this is Steph. She's my composing assistant. Meet her. And that allowed me to establish a rapport with these people who I now work with, you know, on my own as a freelance writer. So it oftentimes takes a man who has the experience to open that door for a woman because we've just been in the shadows for so long and haven't had that kind of support. And other women also need to support other women. You sort of touched upon how, you know, we think of these men on an island that are just musical geniuses who are just churning out brilliant music every day, but really they have an enormous team. Yes. Uh, there's a lot of people in the shadows. So I, I just echoing what you said. I think there's a lot of value in sort of lifting the curtain. Yeah. And not every mentor will do that. Not every person will do that for their employees. So I was lucky to have been, you know, under Harry's wing for so long because he, he gave me that and he knew that he was setting me up for the future. And after six years, that's certainly like I was able to stand on my own two feet once I left. So that's, I owe a lot of that to him. Um, I'm conscious of the time. Uh, top three musical influences that come to mind. Ooh, that's good. Um, I would say I would say Pink Floyd, Jeff Buckley, and like Bartok. <laughs> nice. <laughs> I, like I think that will be my playlist for after. <laughs> um, you get in front of God, or you know, or you're in in heaven or in purgatory, however you want to frame it. Um, they ask you to perform a song, to play a song. What song do you play? It's your world. It's my world. Ooh, um, I'd probably play Mendelssohn Violin Concerto. It's one of my favorite pieces to play on violin. Okay, I'll add that to the playlist. <laughs> um, do you have a dream project, collaborators, etc., that you would just love? Um, just just 
people who are pushing the pushing the envelope and doing different wild stuff and encourage me to do the same. That's too vague. Yeah, Damn it. Yeah. I'd love to work with someone like Inuritu or someone like that. Nice. That would be amazing. That would be the dream, which is not on, in the cards, but you know, whatever. <laughs> Everything's in the cards. <laughs> um, advice for upcoming musicians. I've said this before, but um, don't try to be someone else. Like don't model your career after someone else. Don't try to write music like someone else, unless it's for exercise, like copying someone's style just for the hell of it. I, I think that too many people try to make themselves like other people. And so just make music that feels genuine to you. And you can't go wrong when you do that. I think there's just too much, there's too much like carbon copies of music because everyone's trying to fit a mold. And I think that's like the death of music. I think we need to keep evolving and just like keep encouraging newer diverse voices to like be the musicians that they are. Even though I think any music is just, you know, a pastiche of our influences and all of that stuff. I think it's just, we need to just do, make music that feels genuine to us. How do you discover your quote unquote voice? Oh, I don't know, that eludes me. I don't really know what it means, honestly. Um, I think, like I just said, I think we're just made up of all of these things that we like and have been influenced by. And it's just the way that we express that that is our unique voice. It's through our lens. It's all of these things mixed up into a pot. And it's just the way that we emote that. That's that's the uniqueness, I think. Awesome. Um, well, thank you so much for your time. Uh, this has been great. I could talk to you for so much. Yes. I've learned a lot. It's really interesting. I, I love your take on things. Thank you.